0: 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, for people bolder and the gospel clearer. The book of First Timothy. Dear Church, this is your charge.
1: And good morning, Landmark Church. My name is Matthew Mayer. Honored to be back in this very sacred space where we have the honor to open the Word of God and see what He has to say to His Church. And that's why you're here. We hope that you are taking the Lord at His Word. That's the challenge week after week, corporately as we gather. That's what Paul's intention is for Timothy to take the word of God and apply it corporately. Now, when I say corporately, I'm talking about the public gathering of God's people. There are implications for our individual, private Christian lives that are not to be neglected. And I believe with all of my heart that if we're taking God at his word privately, that will most certainly manifest and impact our lives publicly. In fact, your private life will bleed into your public life. Your private worship will most certainly manifest into your public worship. And ultimately, the health of a body is dependent upon taking God at his word. So I'm asking you to take the word, open it up. We're in the book of 1 Timothy. If you do not have a Bible, we wanna see you with a Bible. There is a Bible in the seat in front of you. Please, if you do not have a personal Bible, we are going to gift that one to you. Take it home, mark it up, highlight it, write in it, bring it back, and let us study the Word of God and see what He has to say to His church. I'll tell you the title up front. Typically don't do that. If I do, there's an intention behind it, and I chose to entitle this installment, this message, spiritual transgenderism when gender roles are reversed in the church. And you probably can marinate on that for the rest of the hour. Now, with a topic like this, as prefaced last Sunday, you better believe this is a widely debated passage of Scripture. It's also a wrongly weaponized passage of Scripture. Did you get that? Widely debated across all denominational lines and wrongly weaponized when, now here's my introductory point, when the plain sense of the text is not presented plainly, backed by the context of Scripture in its entirety. So here's how simple this is gonna be. I'm gonna make the sense of the plain sense of the text. As it's plainly stated, I'm going to plainly state it. (laughs) That's it, might be a shorter message than most, I say that up front, but once I get going, there's no telling when we'll stop. (laughs) Hey, to be all serious, there's a temptation with a message like this as you're preparing it to be politically correct. I had a decision to make early on in the preparatory process. Would I choose to look at the culture and the world and allow the world's ways to define the order of the church, or would I choose to look at the book and the Word of God and allow the Word of God to speak? Ultimately, that's the juxtaposition. We're either looking like the world or we're looking like in the Word to find our identity. That's it. That's what it comes down to for the Christian, each of us, as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't say this enough, and I should, When we gather corporately, it is the body of Christ. It is for the bona fide believer, the disciple. The word of God is being proclaimed to disciple the church. There might be non-believers amongst us. My heart and my aim is typically not to reach the non-believer in this setting. We are to evangelize the world outside of this setting. If the non-believer is caught in the net that is tossed out and they find the Lord in this process, then to God be the glory, and he ordained them to find salvation. But my calling as a pastor teacher is to speak to the church of Jesus Christ. So the intentions of the Word of God are for the Christian to look more like Jesus in as the text lends itself in our gender-specific roles. And what we will see when gender roles are reversed in the church, you get chaos and confusion. Okay, first and foremost, Paul would write to the church in Corinth that our God is a God of order. He's a God of order and peace in his body. With that being noted, when it comes to gender, we are to take our cue from Scripture, not culture. That's my thesis. When it comes to gender roles, male or female, man or woman, boy or girl, the Christian in the church is to take their cue from Scripture, not Culture. Let me get a verse out of the way because it's one that's often misappropriated in the context of gender specific roles. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. In context, when this verse was written by Paul to the church in Galatia, he was saying, Those that put on Christ, those that are in Christ, the playing field is leveled. Anyone can come to Christ. And then he writes this whether Jew, Or Greek free or slave male or female for we are all one in Christ what was he saying he was saying in the body in Christ there is no status for being a Jew even though Christianity was built upon Judaism Gentiles or Greeks were coming to Christ and there was no wall of partition that was dividing the status anymore. He was also saying whether you're in a position of service, a slave, or you're free, you're the master, at the foot of the cross, the playing field is leveled. And then he moves into the gender specificity, whether male or female. Now mind you, the world at the time that it was written off that equilibrium, there was no equality across the board. Women, by and large, were pieces of property in certain cultural contexts. Women didn't have rights in Bible times as we say it. Women's testimony didn't account for anything. It was a man's world, they would say. And then along came Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And Jesus elevated women's status unlike any other. In fact, Christianity is the only, and I don't even like calling it a religion because it's not, but I'm gonna use that term so you understand what I'm saying. It's the only religion in all the world that elevates the role of a woman and places her exactly where God intended her to be. And it's a beautiful thing. And I wanna begin by making that very clear. But Galatians 3.28 speaks about equality. There's equality in Christ, male and female, equal. But let me make sure I'm very clear when I say this next. Equality in Christ, but not equity in Christ. Now if you know what equity is, equity means different assets. And no doubt, gender roles have different assets, different responsibilities. And this is what makes the church unique. There are two institutions that God has established. I covered them last Sunday. The first would be family. Family is, of course, made up of a man and a woman in holy matrimony, in marriage, a new unit or a family that would have children, and that Unit then becomes the institution God has established for security and stability in society. And even though the family imprinted by male and female, those image bearers of God are equal in his sight, God has given unique roles and responsibilities to the man and the woman. The second institution is government. Don't need to spend any time talking about the intentions of government, really to honor good and restrict evil. The third institution is the church. The church is called the family of God, the household of God. Very similarly, as there is equality in the family as image bearers, male and female, boys and girls, there's equality in the church when we come together, brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. But I would be amiss if I only talked about equality in the family and equality in the church without talking about equity in the family and equity in the church, because there's different assets that are assigned to the family and different assets that are assigned to the church of Jesus Christ. Now when we speak about authority or even leadership, which is what this text lends itself to, I want to begin by making it very clear, authority and leadership in the family and authority and leadership in the church are not based upon status, they're based upon service. Now, if we get this, everything that will flow from that one point, that having authority in the church is not about status, it's not about title, this is where we get it wrong. In fact, it's about service. Jesus demonstrated, exemplified what it looked like to be a servant Leader. And of course, we shouldn't miss this point. He was God in the flesh. If there was one who could have rightly lorded himself over all of humanity, it would have and should have been him. But he didn't. And interestingly, in the shadow of the cross, John chapter 13. Specifically, it tells us Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas, of Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And then like right out of that verse, it says this. Jesus, don't miss this. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Let that settle on you. Jesus, knowing that God the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going to God. Who could dare make such a claim that all things were given to me by the Father? I have come from him and I'm going back to him. He's speaking to us about his origin. He is eternal. And then he does this. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, after that poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I don't need to read any further. The idea that God in the flesh decided to wash his disciples' feet, that amongst other teachings that he gave about the first will be Last, you want to be great? The greatest amongst you is the servant. You want to live? You need to die. Jesus' teachings was paradoxical. Jesus' teachings were antithetical to the way of the world. The world would tell you that status is what we should all aspire towards. If you want to be great, you need the title. You need to climb the corporate ladder. First is first, the world would say. Oh, and to find life, mm, you gotta experience all that life has to offer. And yet the way of the Lord is the opposite of the world. Again, I'll say it, authority and leadership in the family, that's the first institution, and authority and leadership in the church is not about status. It's about service, and if we get this, we are going to understand our gender-specific roles in the midst of it all. Now very quickly, I'll touch on Ephesians 5. It's the institution of the marriage as a reflection of Jesus' relationship as the groom to the church, the church is the bride. And a man and woman in marriage is a perfect reflection of this unbelievable relationship that God has with man, his church. And he assigns offices. And the office of husband husband, is called the head of the home or the family or the head of the wife. And right away, people misunderstand this as if it's a domineering, oppressive, tyrannical posture and position that would lord his presence over his, as Genesis chapter two calls her, Help me. But that's an interpretation of the text without the context. And context matters in the Bible. The head of the woman is the man, just as Jesus is the head of the church. And then he defines the roles. Women, submit to your husbands. Wife, submit to your husband. I always like to tell you the punctuations, comma, pause, as to the Lord. Your submission, your serving your husband is unto the Lord, but he doesn't leave out the man or husband's role in the midst of it all. He then uses Jesus' role as the head of the church, the fact that he gave of his life, he says. Oh, you want to be the man of authority? Then like Jesus, who gave himself for the church, See, if we understand, men, our posture and our position as the heads of our marriage and our home, we're not leading from a position of authority over. We're actually serving from a humble posture that is willing to lay down our lives. Now, that's kind of the introductory Groundwork. I wanted you to understand that. Authority and leadership in the church is not about status, it's about service. I need you to have that in the back of your mind as we're working our way through the text. We're going to pick up exactly where we left off last Sunday in 1 Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse eight and nine, and we'll take them together. I desire, therefore, that the men, gender specific, pray everywhere, lifting up, Holy hands, outward posture, without wrath and doubting, without anger and argument. That's both internal and external. Holy hands obviously equals holy hearts. God is not interested in our external posture if our internal temperature is the opposite. It's easy to raise hands in the church. Meanwhile, I'm living a life of a clenched fist outside of the church. So I wanted that imagery to be very clear last week as well. Men, and women, but men, if we in every place lived a life of surrender, a holy life with holy hands lifted, we'd support and hold up that which God has entrusted to us, wives and children and peers. But the outward Needs to be a reflection of the inward. No anger, no argument, no doubting. In verse nine, Paul transitions. He uses a phrase that ties us to verse eight his desire or will for men to lift up holy hands and be prayerful in all places. He says, In like manner, also, likewise, ladies, women, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. All right, stop. (laughs) You all look beautiful today, by the way. Get that out of the way. What is he saying to the men? Can I tell you in one phrase? He's saying, men, when you gather corporately, I need you to come out of your comfort zone. That's what he's saying to the men. We have a posture that is often dignified and comfortable. And we know, we need to be incited and stimulated to come out of our comfort zone. And that is why Paul says to Timothy, tell the men in the church, I want them to come out of their comfort zone. But from the same vein, he's like, Paul is telling Timothy, tell the women to stay in their comfort zone. Stay in your comfort zone, ladies. And sometimes you can come out of your comfort zone in the way you dress. That's what he's saying. He's not adding a prohibition or a dress code to the women of the church as much as he is asking them to consider that their outward adornment, and the word adornment is the Greek word cosmos, or where we get the word cosmetology, cosmetics, This is not a prohibition, listen, against makeup and dressing fashionably. That's not what this text is about at all. It's not about wearing jewelry. He's saying, make sure that the attention is not on you, but on Christ. That's as simply as I should put it. We're gonna talk about what the words mean in a second, but I wanted to make sure that men Everything I'm saying to the ladies is for you as well in a different way. And ladies, everything I'm saying to you is for the men. And men, like vice versa, this is applicable to all of us even though it's gender specific in the text. The men of the church need to take up the spiritual mantle of prayer and spiritual service and loving leadership as an example of Christ everywhere as God has led. Women need to fulfill their office and their role as women of God in the same context serving the body now, please note, it's not about the outward, these verses, but the inward. It's also important to note that the inward makes its way outward. I know that like, sounds contradictory. It's not about the outward, it's about the inward. But by the way, what's happening on the inside is going to make its way to the outside. So here's what we do. We look at verse nine and 10 together. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, the word modest here can be translated appropriate apparel, right for the setting. If you're going to a banquet, the appropriate attire would meet the culture of that banquet. Is it a suit and tie? Is it a dress? What's the appropriate attire for a beach barbecue. Are you understand what I'm saying? He said, have some discretion and discernment and know what your apparel should look like. Is it proper for the setting? He then adds with propriety and moderation. These words are awesome. They mean without shame. That whatever you're wearing, however you're choosing to do your makeup and your hair, however you're putting yourself together, because that's what the word cosmetics means, orderly. It's not a negative. He's just saying, however you're doing that, make sure you're doing it without shame. Make sure you're doing it without being controlled by lustful passion. Make sure, can I be very candid? Make sure you're not showing off too much cleavage. So as, now, to not cause men to stumble, but they should be able to control their thoughts. Yes and amen but we don't need help. Because the way God has wired us, generally speaking, men, we are more sight-driven, sight-stimulated. We respond to what we see. Women generally respond to touch and feel. And there's a difference in that, generally. So in the corporate setting, the church, the attention needs to be on worship, towards God, not look at me and what I am wearing. Now, it's not just for women. Men can take this to an extravagant level as as well. For the women, it's don't be sensual, don't be sexual. He, He mentions a couple things that were cultural, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, you gotta understand Ephesus at the time, Ephesus was a very affluent community. Ephesus was very wealthy So it wasn't uncommon for a wealthy family to come to the Lord and then come to the church wearing jewelry or clothing that was very costly and sit right next to somebody who was a slave who came from nothing and had no property but found family and identity in the church and this person's wearing thousands of dollars worth of clothing and jewelry and they are showing it off and it's making this person envious. Is this making sense? So he's saying just be mindful. He is not saying don't look good. He's not saying don't put paint on the barn if that is necessary. (laughs) Now you gotta also understand in Ephesus was a temple, the temple of Diana. Diana's temple, she was a goddess, the goddess of fertility and sexuality. And right there in that area, it was not uncommon, now here's where you gotta get this culturally, it wasn't uncommon to see a temple prostitute who would stand out from the rest of the ladies in the community by the way she did her hair. And the gold braid in the hair was one of the ways one man would know she is a temple prostitute, and it would draw him in to do something lewd as an act of worship to false gods. They also dress provocatively. Now are you understanding why Paul is like, hey, the church is not supposed to look like the world. The church is supposed to, ladies, dress modestly. This does not mean that we're gonna have burka Sunday next week. <laughs> That's not what is being said here. In fact, here's where he's going. Verse 10, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. He's saying your adornment should not be about the outward as much as what you're uniforming your heart with in order to do good works. And the good works were the role you would play in community wherever God called you. We often don't include this one verse in the rest of the teaching. The rest of the teaching is focused on women need to be silent in the church. Women can't teach in the church. But if you miss what's being said here, that a, woman, a woman's adornment of godliness for good works actually is what you are doing for the kingdom of God, where God has placed you to serve him in the role that is specific for you. It's remarkable, it's not a diminishing of a woman, it's in fact an elevating of a woman's role. He's saying we're not to flaunt one's beauty for selfish adoration, because that is not in line with the humility of Christ. I mean, this isn't complicated stuff. We're just being more mindful of what we're wearing should the focus, of course, as Paul is saying to Timothy, should the focus be on gold in your hair or, ready, should the focus be on God in your heart? What is, which one? He's saying for the Christian woman, the focus should be on God in your heart, in the worship setting. Now, I don't wanna spend too much time teaching this, but the point is true. Proverbs 31, verse 30, we all know this. It's the virtuous woman or wife at the end of that account, it says, charm is deceitful, all right, outward. Beauty is passing. We all know this be true. But the woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. What's attractive in a Christian woman? How she fears the Lord. We, of course, know that the text can also be applied to some of the ways man attracts attention unto himself we love our positions and our titles what he's saying here is that women should spend more time tending to lasting beauty over passing beauty that's it that's all that's being said peter would write something very similar in 1 peter chapter 3 verses 3 to 5 and in both accounts the account in timothy and the account in First Peter, the emphasis is not only on outward beautification. If that's all we're getting out of this, we're missing it. The emphasis is on inward sanctification. And Peter would say it like this, do not let your adornment, same word, your cosmetics, be merely outward. He's not saying don't apply makeup and dress nice. He's saying don't let it only be a focus of the outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Verse four, rather, important word, let it be the hidden person of the heart. What's important? The heart. What does God see? The heart. With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. I know these verses can make certain people cringe. But we can choose to see the scriptures as the basis of authority and then understand what God is asking of each gender in the midst of it, or we can choose to rebel and defy and take the cue from the culture. I wanna make one more point before we move into the heavier topic of the morning. And note that both passages, what we read in 1 Timothy, about women adorning themselves, and the passage I just read to you in 1 Peter, both passages that refer to outward adornment, they deploy a very unique literary technique that's common in the Bible. It's a comparison of two things with the substitution of the one thing for the other thing. Or let me say it like this. It's a comparison between two things that substitutes a good thing for a godly thing. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse eight. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that is now and that which is to come. He's not saying don't take care of your body. He's not saying that bodily exercise is sinful. He's not saying don't work out. He's saying that working out godliness on the scales of life weigh weigh much more. Bodily exercise profits a little bit, but then the body breaks down and we age and we get old. You wanna work out something that matters to God in the grand scheme of life and eternity? Work out godliness, work out your salvation. Jesus does the same thing when he says in John 6, 27, do not work for food that spoils. Right away, does that mean we should not work? That we shouldn't tend to our families and provide their needs? That we shouldn't eat physical food, is that what he's saying? No, he's saying, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He is showing you a good thing, and substituting it for a godly thing. He's like, the same way you work towards physical food that perishes, why not with that same energy or more work towards spiritual food, which is eternal life? Jesus is simply comparing spiritual things with physical things. He's emphasizing that spiritual food or spiritual things must be given higher priority to value physical health over spiritual health would be dumb and detrimental. Now he goes from attire to attitude. This is how I marked up my Bible. He goes from attire for women to attitude. And he jumps into it. Verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And clearly, from verses 11 and 12, clearly it's a man's world. And this has to be a man-made book that has led to a man-made world. And women, you better know your role. The Bible's very clear about that, right? It's why we say amen at the end of a prayer instead of a woman. Yeah, it's also why we sing hymns and not hers in the church. Amen! Well played. And everything I just said after reading the verse is not true. And remember, we're going to make a plain sense of the text. Right away, ladies, Let a woman learn. We go no further in understanding the times. When this was penned, it was a Greco-Roman world, and women had no place to let alone learn. Women were uneducated. There were no women of the law, no women of letters. Even in Judaism, Women had a very specific role in the confines of the home. The fact that Paul's even saying, let a woman learn, is going against the culture in a very loud way. He also adds, it's probably a bad English translation, I'll admit. In silence, with all submission. In silence... In the original language, the Greek language, okay, stay with me. The word silence here, let a woman learn in silence, is the same word that we find in verse two of this chapter. Verse two tells us, pray for kings and all in authority so that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life with godliness and reverence. The word peaceable, is the word silence here. Translation, let a woman learn in peace, without contention, not loud. He's not saying be be quiet. He's saying from the inside out, let a woman sit and absorb. This is the principle of submission in the corporate gathering. He adds, I do not permit a woman gender specific, to teach or to have authority over a man. Again, we separate the two. A woman can't teach and she can't have authority over a man. It's the same phrase. He is suggesting, do not let a woman have doctrinal authority or scriptural interpretation over the body, which is made up of males, men and women, and we're gonna get into why that is very specific. He's saying, I'm not asking you to be speechless in the corporate gathering, I'm asking you to be peaceful in the corporate gathering. There must have been something, not just contextually happening in the body. We know this from how he addressed the church in Corinth as well. It wasn't just there were women who were rowdy that were in the setting, and he's just. this is one of the arguments. He's just addressing an issue that was happening in the church at that time, and it's not applicable for all time. That's one of the arguments, but they can't make that argument once we get to verse 13 and 14. Remember, context is king. He's also saying he doesn't want words being misused or overused or abused, that which stirs up friction and contention in the body. And I'm not gonna say that there's a study out there that says that women sometimes speak a little bit more than men? Just a little bit more? Maybe two times more than men? I don't know what that's all about, ladies. You're wired differently. There's gender specificity. He is saying here, a woman must learn in peace with submission. To who? Well, he's talking about submission in the church, which is given to elders. And there's a reason why this chapter ends and chapter three begins by describing the characteristics of an elder, because he goes from a woman's role back to a man's role. So the word elder in the Bible is always gender-specific to a man, always. Churches in the New Testament context are built upon the premise of plurality of elders who are only men. Those men were given the assignment or the commissioning to have a spiritual authority over that corporate body. But remember, our authority is not about status. The authority given is about service. service. See, this idea behind authority, it's the only time it's mentioned in the New Testament, this word for authority here. Paul chooses a word where otherwise the word authority has a different meaning. He chooses a word here that means this, Ready? I do not permit a woman to have doctrinal authority or to have domineering, independent, autonomous authority over a man. This changes everything. This does not say that women cannot use their gifting in the church if they have the gift to teach. This is saying a woman cannot fulfill the ruling elder role for men in the church. Hence why I chose the entitle it, spiritual transgenderism. This suggests that the ruling elders must have the commissioning or authority for doctrinal explanation and teaching in the church. A woman does not have that role. She is to be in silence. Again, that word is misleading. It means settling in under authority, it means submission. It's what a soldier does according to his rank in the army. Of course, having the title of sergeant or lieutenant or general, they're made of the same stuff, they're equal as humans, but the moment the title enters the equation, there's a submission that is warranted. At Landmark Church, we believe in a plurality of elders, to be very clear. We believe God has ordained and commissioned the word authority, he's commissioned certain men to have the ability and the gifting to teach and lead and shepherd. Our entire posture of leadership is not lording over, it's serving under. Jesus is the example as the head of the church. When I was assigned the title lead pastor, I chuckle, because you won't find that title in the Bible. But I accept it because I understand what's being said and asked of me, that every team needs a leader, and a church needs a lead pastor. And I said from Jump Street, my entire role is not to be the lead pastor, but a pastor who leads. And when I come to my elder team, of other qualified, according to chapter three men, what happens is I sit down and I give over my authority. I hand it off to them and I am equal with them. I am not above them and they are not above me. I sit at the table as one amongst many, humbled. I give them my authority. If they want me to make a certain decision, you know what they do? They pass it back to me. And they trust me to make the decisions on behalf of the fellowship. That is healthy leadership dynamic. Done any other way where power or authority is consolidated and you get tyranny. And you get a body that is off its axis and equilibrium. And that's what creates a lot of divisiveness in the church of Jesus Christ. So while I am honored by the title lead pastor, you gotta understand even the posture of the person that is in the lead He submits to the authority of other men in that fellowship. Now with that dynamic, our posture at Landmark is to create as much space as possible for women to use their gifting to God be the glory. We wanna create space if God has given you the gift to teach to do so, and perhaps, get this, even from the stage, which we've done in the past. We had a female speaker named Mo Isom join us, and she took the Sunday services, and of course, we received emails from people saying, a woman can't teach? No, that's not what that means. As long as she was in submission to the male authority and leadership of the church, a woman can teach. It's by the elders of that church's discretion. And by the way, not every man in the church is called to teach. It's just a subset. So right away, this passage that is dealing with women can also be applied to men. Not every man is called to take the teaching authority that God has given him in any given church. It's a very specific subset of man that God calls unto himself. But the culture says, of course, the Bible's outdated. The Bible expresses what we call the patriarchy. It's as if the Spirit of God knew that through the ages there would be the argument in the house of God. Now, please know this principle is only for the church. It also does not mean that every woman in this fellowship must submit to every man. No, wives submit to your husbands as he is serving and surrendering his life unto the Lord, and you have this beautiful balance. We've got it all wrong in the church. Women can rise and be great CEOs in any setting, perhaps the president, if the Lord would allow and will. But in the church, there's this beautiful balance. And the reason there's a beautiful balance is because God's creative order ordained it. And this is perhaps why the Spirit leads Paul out of verse 11 and 12, which are very complicated verses, very simply stated. He does not permit a woman to have doctrinal authority. That's specific for a man not to have authority in that setting unless they submit and they can use their gifting as missionaries, as evangelists, as people that pray, that prophesy, and all the other giftings are all for every man and every woman as God assigned. But to be in this setting is to submit to the ruling authorities, which are males. That word is also pastor, pastor teacher in the Bible. And I know there are, Women who take the title of pastor, and I would say they might have a gift that would lend themselves to be pastoral, but to take the title of pastor, teacher, or elder is not biblical. Why? Verse 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is not just chronology. This is, in God's economy, priority, God chose to make Adam first. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. All right, what just happened here? What happened in real time was that Adam was not deceived. He actually sinned with his eyes wide open. Eve was deceived. It tells us as she was deceived, she fell into transgression. That happened in real time. That's how it played out. The serpent came in, Genesis chapter three. He, of course, uses God's word against her. Did God say that? Yeah, that's what God said, she said. And then he says that's not what he meant. And of course, she took of the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says she ate, now get this, and then she gave to her husband, ready? And he ate. Why is that important? Because as we read it in verse 13 and 14, Adam was formed first, then Eve. You have a reverse of that order in verse 14. So as woman was deceived, and then Adam followed. And what happened in real time has played out differently for all time. What do I mean by that? Who do you think's to blame for the sin of man? It's Adam. Why in the world is Adam blamed if the text tells us that it was Eve who ate of the fruit first. Simply put, the principle of headship. God assigned headship to Adam. How do we know that? We know that because it was in Genesis chapter two before Eve was created that God spoke to Adam and said, here's my commandment. You can eat freely of every tree in the garden But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam was given authority, autonomous, commissioned authority, headship. He was probably supposed to instruct his wife That's why in Genesis chapter three, if you note when they were hiding from the Lord, who did God call out to? Adam, where are you, the Lord said. Adam would be responsible, according to Romans chapter five, that through one man, sin entered the world and has impacted all people. Through one man, death entered the world. This is not a gullibility issue. Some have made it a gullibility issue. We can make a case, generally speaking, that women may be more gullible, but you can also say that about men. But the idea is if it's a gullibility issue and women are just more spiritually sensitive and that's why they shouldn't have the the posture of authority over a church is because they can be deceived, maybe, but so can men. Women may be more spiritually sensitive, and when it's harnessed by heaven, it's beautiful. However, if that sensitivity is not harnessed by heaven, that is terrible, and that is a vicious thing. So what's going on here in verses 13 and 14? I'll tell you very rhythmically. Where she was to heed, Eve, she took the lead. And where Adam was to lead, he decided to heed and both of them are not in their gender-specific roles in this context. Where Eve was supposed to heed, and perhaps came to her husband for him to have the authority to make the decision that God said were not to touch the tree, nor eat of the fruit. She decides to take the lead, and Adam decides to heed. And here's what you have, Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. In case you think I'm just making this up. What did God say to Adam? Genesis 3, 17. Then to Adam God said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. What was God's rebuke and curse to Adam? Because you heeded, you should have been leading. Instead, you let her lead and you followed her lead and you just threw off my creative order. That's what God is saying here. And to take verse eight from last week so we get what what is being laid out, Adam should have lifted up holy hands to lead. Instead, he put forth unholy hands to heed. Can you picture that in your mind? I don't know how high the branch was that Eve had to grab the fruit from. Was it eye level? Did she have to get up on her tippy toes? I don't know. But in my mind, I see her reaching for it And also in my mind, I see that Adam, the man, should have stepped in and lifted up holy hands to stop her because that's what a true leader of a home does. He protects and he provides that which God has entrusted to him as the head of the family. He leads by surrender, but with lifting holy hands, he stops his wife from grabbing that fruit, and that would have ended all of it, but he doesn't. He does what most men do stays complacent, stays in his comfort zone. And instead of lifting up holy hands, um, I imagine him extending unholy hands and taking that same fruit. And with eyes wide open, he eats. This is why he would be blamed. The sin of Adam This is the beginning, as you see it, of the undoing of God's creative order, which was intended to bring order. Remember, when the Word of God is not the divine order that determines human order, the result is always disorder. I'm not done with Genesis chapter three. I'm gonna show you the result of having this dynamic out of order. What God entrusted to man as husband in the home, as head, was to lead by serving his wife not lording it over her but by serving under her like Jesus laid down his life for the church. That same dynamic is also instituted in the family of God where God has instituted male leadership with certain authority over a body that does not lord that authority over women to be silent as some have taught this, where there's no room for them to use their gifting in the church. That's not in the text at all. In fact, as already stated, the Church of Jesus Christ and the head of the Church, Jesus, as the, as the as the example, elevated women's status. I can list off all the great women, not only in the Old Testament but the New Testament, women that supported Jesus' ministry. Mary's upper room is what held the disciples. For only the Lord knows how often they were able to retreat to that space. Mary Magdalene. The first evangelist, some say, that would carry forth the gospel message after Jesus was risen at the tomb. There's Phoebe, there's Dorcas, there's a list of women that served in the early church, which was, again was counter cultural. But what you will not find in the New Testament is any woman listed as an elder or a pastor teacher in the New Testament. And this is what the feminist movement grabbed a hold of and yells at the top of their lungs that if man can do it, we should do it. Now, listen, I am the father of a daughter and I want my willow, as God leads her, I want her to live up to everything God has for her. If She wants to be an astronaut. Yesterday she said she wanted to be a doctor and an ice cream maker. How do you like that? Um, I'm like, did I hear you correctly? You wanna be a doctor and an ice cream maker? I'm like, we can do both, I love that. (laughs) But scripturally, she can't be a pastor. She may have a gift to teach like her daddy, and if the Lord would will, she'll use it in the church context, but she'll never be an elder. It's just not in the text. So what did God say to the woman? Verse 16. To the woman he said, "'I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. "'In pain you shall bring forth children. "'Your desire shall be for your husband, "'and he shall rule over you.'" Perhaps conception did not involve the multiplication of sorrow and pain, but now it does as a result of the fall and sin. This is what would happen to the birthing process. And then there's this very obscure verse at the end where it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And if you're looking for your next Valentine's Day verse of choice, that ain't it. And I say that with humor, but that verse has been taught as if all of a sudden now, the wife would have this desire for her husband No, this is post-fall. The gender roles were assigned pre-fall. Adam was given the commandment to lead as the head. Eve was created as a helper suitable. The word helper, as I've already said, God applied to himself, I believe, over 60 times throughout the word of God. He applied the fact that he's Israel's helper. That is not a derogatory title whatsoever. In fact, man cannot lead adequately without woman leading in her position. And there's this beautiful blend between the gender assignments. Gender matters to God. Gender-specific malehood. Gender-specific womanhood. And as the fall fractured that and threw off what God intended as the creative order, it says, Woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Can I teach it very quickly? What is being said here is the reason why there's marital strife and there's chauvinistic and oppressive and tyrannical behavior, which often is pinned to the church wrongly. It's because this desire, that woman now wants to take man's place. That's what it means there. Her desire will be to circumvent his authority, to usurp his authority, to wanna take his position, to want to take the term that I used earlier, not physical transgenderism, spiritual transgenderism, transgenderism It's gender swapping or gender blurring. She wants to be the man and wear the pants and do what only God called the man to do. And as a result, it says he's going to oppress you and push you down and rule over you. This verse right here is terrible. This is why there's friction, sin, and choosing to rebel against God's authority, God's word, and how he has in his creative order applied male leadership and woman leadership. Now Ephesians 5 would be appropriate. What time is it? Oh man. We're way over. Shocker. We will not be having a final song. I'm going for it. I'm going to save Ephesians 5 for next Sunday, Lord willing, or whenever I'm back in the the saddle here. What I really want us to leave with this morning is that when gender roles are reversed in the church, it is spiritual transgenderism. Denominations are currently imploding because of this one issue. And I want you to see a trend when gender roles are reversed, when women are taking men's positions and men are taking women's positions, every other cultural compromise soon follows. Because if God's word is not the authority, but culture is, then how many other cultural issues should dictate and determine the way of the church? Verse 15, nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The most complicated verse Some would say in all of the Bible, what the heck does this mean? I'll tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that a woman would be saved, salvation, through giving birth. If the context is helpful, maybe the she here, nevertheless she, maybe it's Eve, and that would be true. He just got done talking about Adam and Eve, and Eve sinned, and perhaps he's saying, hey, but by the way, God redeemed all of mankind through the fact that woman would give birth and she would produce the seed that would be the Messiah, and through the Messiah, everything would be put back in order. Perhaps that's what's being said here, but it falls a little bit short. What is really being said here is the she is gender specific for all ladies of all time. And the idea is that childbearing would reroute the desire to rule over your husband. What would reroute the desire to take your husband's position? your gender-specific role. This is what would save a woman from desiring to usurp man's authority if she embraced her unique, God-given role as a woman. And I can't believe I have to say this, but only a woman can give birth to a child, okay? We will not be calling our ladies birthing people up in here, up in here. See, men can't do this. This is not a diminished role. This is not like, oh, I'm to so be subjected to the home just giving birth. No, this is a high calling. This is an unbelievable blessing that was only reserved for woman. She would rule. You wanna rule? You'd rule in this role. Now, there's an interesting Dynamic that is occurring in our society, and they want us to blur gender differences. And God has designed gender difference for a reason, and this is why the culture forces gender indifference. And the church is not supposed to take the cue from the culture and say that gender doesn't matter, gender matters greatly in God's economy. I have so much more to say, and perhaps there'll be a part two to this text. The time. I am going to hear it from my helpmate when I get home. (laughs) So let me pray and I'm getting out of the way. And because we're late, I'm gonna pray us out and we're going to be dismissed. I'm so sorry to our worship team. I wanna honor the time here and we are going to be dismissed. I'm going to do a part two just to make sure that everything's clear. I hope to have been true to the word of God as it's laid out before us. I hope no lady in this place ever feels diminished, feels second class, feels overlooked. We want you to feel used, your gifting to edify the body. There is roles in every gifting for you. And we wanna make sure that we create a space where we understand there is beauty in gender difference. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you for this opportunity to administer your word. Thank you for the great women of faith who have pioneered and paved the way. Thank you for Jesus who teaches us what it looks like to serve and surrender, and not, Lord, authority over. Thank you for this body of believers, the elders, the pastors, and everyone you've used for your glory, honor, and praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen.